Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. My guest today is Bill Sternberg, USA Today editorial page editor. Last November, Bill lost his son, Scott, to an overdose at the age of 31. Scott had struggled with substance use disorder since getting addicted to Oxy was prescribed after having his appendix removed while he was in college. In September, Bill shared his son's struggle with addiction in an editorial that he wrote for USA Today. Here to tell that story is USA Today's editorial page editor, Bill Sternberg. So, Bill, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Okay. We're members of a very large and and still-growing fraternity of parents who've lost children to the opioid epidemic. And, And, you know, many just can't bear to speak about it in public. But you've chosen to use your platform at USA Today to share Scott's story to help others. What do you want people to know about Scott? Well, we want him to know that he was our beautiful boy. He was a, a sweet kid. He always had a smile on his face. He had a pretty unremarkable uh, childhood growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. He was a good student, not a great student, but a good student. He played varsity tennis uh, uh, for four years and uh, went off to college and uh, loved his family and his brother and his sister and his dog. And uh, uh, then his brain got hijacked by this affliction of addiction. And uh, it was a very difficult several years for all involved. But even even as Scott was wrestling with this, um, after he died, we were overwhelmed that we got uh, from the treatment programs that Scott had been in telling us how Scott had reached out to them and helped them recover. And there was one uh, gentleman who said he was suicidal until he met Scott. And Scott uh, sat down with him and said, what's wrong, buddy? And and he gave uh, this person hope. Um, So it's both heartwarming that Scott was able to help so many other people and heartbreaking that he wasn't able to save himself. So can you share a little bit with how how that happened? He, he seemed to be doing great when he came back and mm-hmm. you two golfed together. Take us from mm-hmm. there in terms of what happened. Yeah, I think his is a not unusual story in that uh, we believe his first exposure to opioids was when he was in college and he had a, his, an emergency appendectomy and the incision got infected. And uh, as was uh, common practice at the time, um, he was given a 30-day prescription for opioids. And, uh, you know, I think there's some people who can uh, take 
go on those 30 days and walk away with no problem, but there's a certain percentage that their brain is wired in such a way that it's sort of the best feeling they ever had or they want to continue to have their brain uh, feel that way. And, uh, you know, as, you know, I think we've seen over and over again as uh, people get addicted to opioids, they... Um, you know, as as the prescription painkillers get more difficult uh, to uh, obtain, uh, they turn the uh, people who are addicted turn to heroin, which um, uh, you know can be, believe it or not, easier to get and cheaper and give a better high. And now we're kind of in yet another stage of of this uh, epidemic where the heroin and, and some of the counterfeit uh, pain pills are increasingly spiked with fentanyl, which is uh, particularly strong and lethal. So in, in Scott's case, he uh, uh, we found a treatment program in, in Texas, um, outside of Dallas, um, that seemed to be much more science-based and evidence-based than some of the previous programs he'd been in. Um, he was doing well there. He transitioned to a, uh, a sober living house, and uh, uh, but someone, you know, someone came into that community who uh, was not, uh, uh, shall we say, dedicated to staying sober. And for whatever reason, Scott, uh, uh, you know, the cravings became too much for him and and so he relapsed at that point and unfortunately uh, the the day he died he he used alone and uh, so there was no one to to call uh, for Narcan and uh, and the other insidious thing is that the longer you're uh, sober um, your tolerance changes so that uh, a dose that you might have been able to handle when you were using regularly can become lethal uh, if you relapse after a significant period of sobriety. And it's a real failing in the system, as I, I said. When you think about my emergency room experience in Austin, where they just gave me a sheet of paper, the equivalent would be, you know, a heart attack patient coming in, them giving you a defibrillator, get you uh, revived, and then giving you a piece of paper that says, well, here's 30 cardiologists you might want to go talk to. Yeah. And, you know, leaving yep. uh, you on your own after that. There's, sure. there's way too much disconnection in the system and way too much heavy lifting on, on the part of uh, families trying to deal with that. So in your, your editorial, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Finding uh, recovery, many people think of it as uh, hitting rock bottom first. But the reality is that uh, rock bottom often means death for uh, for many people. So how can we kind of change that narrative mm-hmm. in, our, in our country? I think we need to spread the word that overcoming addiction is not just a question of willpower. That addiction is a chronic brain disorder. And if indeed it is an illness, it ought to be treated like other illnesses. And we don't talk about cancer patients or diabetics having to hit bottom uh, before they can get treatment. And we really shouldn't talk that way about 
people battling addiction. Um, now, it's true, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, Greg, when you ask some people who are addicted what turned them around, they will say that becoming homeless or jobless or friendless or, or penniless is, is what did it. And it's true that a certain amount of tough love is necessary to get some people into treatment. But I think we need to rethink that in the age of fentanyl in particular, I think we need to rethink this whole hitting bottom concept. For one thing, it's only bottom is recognizable only in hindsight. And secondly, with the so many of the drugs on the street being laced with fentanyl, um, really a relapse is, is a life-threatening emergency as, or dropping out of treatment. And uh, uh, there's really no room for error in terms of hitting bottom. Well, there's life. Well, there's life. There's hope. But uh, if hitting bottom means deceased, uh, it's just not a uh, viable way of thinking about things. Yeah. So, in Scott's case, what compelled him to decide to go to get help? I think he knew he was in trouble. You know, obviously, we noticed certain signs, and uh, I think he he recognized that. Uh, Things were unsustainable. One of one of his good friends died from uh, opioid addiction. So I think it was a combination of him him recognizing that his life was spiraling out of control, seeing one of his friends die, and and as well as uh, those of us who cared about him and loved about him, uh, urging him to to seek treatment. So. When you come to that point where they're ready for treatment, you're really also, you're in crisis mode as a family, and you're very vulnerable. There's a lot of scams out there and bad actors in the treatment and rehab industry. What advice would you have for other parents on how to avoid being exploited when trying to get help for a loved one? That's a great question, Greg. As I, as I mentioned in the column, um, you know, when Scott overdosed for the first time, he ended up at a, uh, a emergency room in Austin, Texas. And once he was stabilized, they gave us a sheet of paper with about the names of 30 um, detox and rehab facilities with uh, no indication whatsoever of which of these were any good which we're still accepting new patients, which might take as insurance, which might offer medicated-assisted treatment. And as a journalist, I'm trained to find credible information in a hurry. But I was totally overwhelmed. And I imagine uh, other folks uh, in the same situation dealing in a crisis um, uh, uh, feel the same way. So I think... The sad answer to your question is there really is no great consumer reports out there yet in terms of uh, treatment centers or providers. So the best you can do is uh, there are some decent guides that you can look to for at least um, knowing what questions to ask and what to look for in a provider or a treatment center. Um, At the bottom of my column, I list uh, a, a number of them. Uh, there's the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, 
has some good guides. The National Institute on Drug Abuse has uh, frequently asked questions, uh, as does the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, Hazelton Betty Ford Foundation has a list of 12 questions to ask every addiction treatment provider. And uh, there's a group, are you familiar, uh, Greg, with the group called Shatterproof? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They've uh, come up with something called the National, National Principles of Care, which is um, sort of eight um, uh, principles that they think uh, the best treatment uh, programs ought to provide. Um, so that would be a good, you can go on their website and uh, check out those eight principles and look for a place that uh, meets all or most of those, and that would be everything from uh, routine medical screenings to a personal plan for each patient to offering medication-assisted uh, treatment to having um, uh, you know recovery support services beyond uh, the initial uh, treatment phase. Because as as you mentioned, uh, far too many of the treatment centers are sort of, <clears throat> will do the 28 days or the 30 days that insurance covers, um, and then beyond that, you're kind of on your own, and uh, they seem more interested in harvesting insurance money than they do in in uh, managing a what is a chronic uh, disorder. I want to talk a little bit about the crossroads of uh, and the decisions that uh, you really make consciously or subconsciously when you send somebody off to uh, rehab remotely. When uh, when we sent Sam, in fact, to, to Florida, we focused on getting him into a really good program and not the fact that he would be building his recovery capital down in Florida. And if and when he came back to Ohio, that would have to be rebuilt. Did you have similar experiences and, and thoughts before sending Scott to Texas? Well, you know, as as you said, a lot of times you're dealing with a crisis at the right uh, at the beginning. So your your first thought is to kind of get the person out of the environment that they're in, um, because that's you know where they're dealing with other people who are using and selling. So sort of the short term thinking is to you know get them into a different environment. Um, but you're absolutely right, Greg, that, you know, that 28 days or that 30 days goes by very quickly. And, you know, you have the, a parental peace of mind during those uh, four weeks. Um, but then, you know, that's, that's uh, we all know addiction is not something that could be cured in 28 or, or 30 days, despite the insurance model out there and despite what some of the websites for these uh, treatment programs might imply or, or say. Um, so you really do need um, a support network in place. And you need to think about that before those 28 or 30 days are up. Um, you know, in our case, uh, got sort of transferred into we didn't bring him back home after um, his 30 days in, in outside of Dallas, but at that point he transitioned into some sober living uh, apartments in 
in Dallas, so we didn't quite have to deal with the same uh, uh, issue you did there, but it, it, it's a big issue and, and a very difficult. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. So there's plenty to suggest that the pharmaceutical companies really are at the root of this whole problem and the epidemic. And I think, you know, you're right. It was the, the drug makers had a, a key role here. Um, they, the pharmaceutical reps uh, went around the country telling doctors that uh, there was less than a 1% chance of addiction uh, from, you know, say a 30 or 60 day uh, uh, oxy prescription, and I've been trying to get the real number. Uh, amazingly, even the American Medical Association and uh, others still won't give you a number, but sort of the best estimates I've gotten from people um, in the field are that uh, the odds of getting addicted or dependent from that first uh, 30-day oxy prescription are much closer to 10% to 25% than they are less than 1%. So I think that the first exposure that most people had to the fact that the you know pharmaceuticals uh, companies and big pharma, their role in this whole thing, for many people, their first exposure was Dreamland, which was published in 2015. And I, I was really surprised to, uh, to find out that Barry uh, Meyer from the New York Times published Painkiller. I, I, this, for whatever reason, wasn't up on my radar screen. But that exposed Big Pharma as the cause of the epidemic back in 2003. So I, I think that there should be national outrage over the fact that the addictive nature of particularly OxyContin um, was known 15 years ago. And, and really nothing was done to stop it. You're right. I mean, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. It's not just, it's probably primarily the pharmaceutical companies, but you had the distributors were complicit and a lot of the doctors were complicit either either uh, because they were ignorant about uh, the addictive quality or, or greedily uh, ignoring it. Um, uh, yeah, so Barry did some excellent work on uh, Early on that, I think, you know, the Sam Quinones book, Dreamland, was a real reporting tour de force, but that that was really, at least in my mind, more um, uh, eye-opening in terms of the supply side for heroin, Um, you know, because he really got to the bottom of where the heroin was coming from and the the trafficking uh, networks coming from Mexico. Um, But you're right, a lot of, of what he said about what Big Pharma um, was doing built on the, the reporting from others. Um, you know, personally, I'm, I'm all for holding those, uh, the people accountable, um, you know, but I think right now, you know, the building right now is on fire, and there's, you know, 
200 people a day in this country dying of drug overdoses. That's you know the equivalent of a, of a of a plane um, crashing, a 737 crashing every day. And uh, uh, so I think the real short-term focus would be to save as many people as we can in that burning building and put the fire out. And there'll be there'll certainly be plenty of time to. Uh, track down the arsonists and, and hold them accountable. Um, and that should be done as well. But in the immediate term, um, you know, I think we have to, you know, there's over 2 million people who are already addicted. We have to save as many of those people as we can and prevent as many new people from becoming addicted. In your mind, how would you feel, um, we would vet, I'll call it, some of our candidates to determine the most qualified people to fight the opioid epidemic in our country? Well, I would think the first and probably the most important thing is just get a sense of how they think of addiction. Um, and if they have, have sort of the old school thought process that addiction is a question you know, merely a matter of uh, weak character or, uh, you know, completely the bad choices by by the person who's addicted I, uh, and that uh, really all that needs to be done to stop is abstinence. Um, I think that would identify people who are not really in a good position to be on a leadership role um, on this crisis. And those who understand the latest science, the Surgeon General's report that addiction is indeed a chronic brain disorder, that relapse is a common part of it, and the best science out there is, is that um, uh, medication-assisted treatment, um, you know, is, is, is certainly not a cure-all, but has better results than um, the traditional counseling peer support alone. And uh, the, the best numbers I see are that, you know, that, that uh, the traditional 12-step um, big book uh, process can maybe help 10 to 20 percent of opioid addicts, if uh, realistically, and that with medicated assisted treatment, that number goes up to perhaps 40 or 50 percent. Um, so I think you need, in terms of looking for politicians, I think you need those who who have a modern understanding of what we're dealing with here, those who would be willing to put money into medication-assisted treatment and those who, as you said, would be willing to stand up to the drug industry to um, make sure we don't keep creating a new generation of, of addicted people. That, uh, um, you know, even though prescriptions, uh, painkiller prescriptions have dropped Significantly, I believe there's still about 170 million a year being written, which is one practically one for every adult in the United States, which still seems uh, 
far too much when you consider the alternatives available. Way high, no doubt about it. So getting back to the opioid epidemic, yeah. as I look at our leaders, I, um, I really I don't look at party anymore. I look at, mm. okay, who are going to be the best at solving mm. this issue, solving the crisis, and helping many families out there heal? Um, I, I'd like to ask you, Bill, if I, if I could, to give us maybe your final thoughts for our listeners on how we might be able to move forward and forge leadership to, that's going to solve this, uh, this crisis for us, either in, mm. in politics or outside. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think it should be, is or should be a partisan issue. You know, your senator, Senator Porton, uh, a Republican from Ohio, has certainly taken uh, a useful leadership role here. Um, you know, Very and effective. President Trump, the, the, President Trump, despite uh, what we said about him editorially, you know, he lost a brother to alcohol addiction and has, has at times. Uh, uh, put put some weight of the White House behind uh, doing what's needed to be done, although this White House tends to have a pretty limited attention span. Um, so it's it's not a partisan thing, I, I think, and I think it's important that, uh, <clears throat> you know, you know, or the answers here are not all going to come from Washington. If we wait for Washington... Uh, to act, it, Washington, what uh, Washington does is, is important. The legislation that has passed the House and House and Senate um, is is important, particularly in terms of trying to stop the flow of uh, poison in, into our communities uh, in the form of fentanyl coming in mainly from China and also from Mexico. I think that's that's something that really only customs can. And uh, the Postal Service can, can deal with. So that's important. What Washington does is important. But also what uh, people in communities all around the country are doing will really um, be most important. And people like yourself who are helping uh, spread the word and channeling your grief in, in, a, in a constructive fashion, um, you know, we can't... Uh, bring our own sons back, but uh, if we can help save some other people, uh, uh, their deaths will not have been in vain. Final comments, Bill. When I wrote my column, um, I got, uh, I've just been overwhelmed by the response. There's, there's, it's, uh, although our politics can seem very nasty at the moment, there are a huge number of well-meaning, compassionate people out there. I got more emails than I was. I've tried to answer all of them, but uh, they come in faster than uh, I'm I'm able to. And uh, you know, I did a, a Reddit chat uh, recently with a addiction psychiatrist, and and over over five hundred thousand people viewed that. And uh, so wow. it's it, it's an enormous uh, problem, and uh, it's not certainly not going to be solved overnight. But it's going to take a sustained effort at both the community level and and uh, uh, and in Washington to, to try to change the arc of, of, of this tragedy. We've been joined today by Bill Sternberg, the USA Today editorial page editor, who has really bravely put his family's story and the story of his son, in particular Scott, his story of addiction out there. 
and shared that so that other families and communities can learn from that. And Bill's making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.